Good morning, travelers, pre-med students, and undergraduates. Welcome to Doctors In. This podcast features top-performing proactive physicians with whom we try to dissect what makes them the best in their respective specialties. I am your host, MD Hawk, and I am currently in the medical field. In this podcast, we try to ask the right questions to deconstruct study strategies, useful habits, constructive failures, and life lessons. Join us as we navigate through the different specialties in medicine. Three, two, one, and we are live. Today we're joined by Dr. Betsy Grunch, who is a neuro and spine surgeon based at the Longstreet Clinic in Georgia. She got her MD at the Medical College of Georgia and completed her neurosurgery residency and her spine surgery fellowship at Duke University Medical Center. Her main interests are minimally invasive spine surgeries, artificial disc replacements, and the overall advancements of neurotrauma, which includes acute surgical management of traumatic brain injury and spinal cord injury. She is one of Georgia's top doctors with multiple awards along with placement in the 40 under 40 list at UGA. During her free time, she goes on family adventures with her husband, two kids, and two dogs. Now, to keep up to date on the life of a neurospine surgeon and see interesting cases along with the captivating x-rays and visual information, you can follow Dr. Grunch on Instagram at Dr. Grunch. That's all spelled out. Dr. G-R-U-N-C-H or on TikTok at Lady Spine Doc. Without further ado, let's welcome our esteemed surgeon to the end. Well, hello there, Dr. Grunch. How are you doing on this uh, Thursday? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course, uh, as we were kind of talking earlier before this podcast started, uh, you're kind of having a good time right now at Vegas at a conference. So do you want to tell the audience a little bit about what the con- what the conference is about and how has the experience been so far? Sure. I'm at the American Academy of Neurological Surgeons spine section meeting. Uh, just happens to be in Vegas. So we are on day two of four. So um, just having a good time learning about spine surgery and about uh, newer advancements and research in spine. So we're going to have, have some learning experiences and then also have a little bit of fun in Vegas while I'm here. So yeah, that is good to hear. And I'm glad that you talked about the advancements in terms of technology and things like that. We'll definitely get into that uh, in a bit. But before we do that, I do want to start at a very recent memory of yours to paint a picture for the audience as to how immense your impact is felt, I would say, from the patient's perspective. So on um, February 21st, you got some flowers, chocolate, and a card. And I read the card that you posted, and it was very heartfelt. So can you please tell us what you did for this patient, the case that was involved, and kind of how often you are met with this immense sense of gratitude? That's what I really love about spine surgery is that, and, and neurosurgery in general, is that you really make a huge difference in people's lives. And, um, I, when I'm in clinic, I, you know, see patients that come back to see me after their surgery. Um, and it's just so rewarding to see patients that have just a tremendous change in their life. So this particular patient, very sweet. She came in to see me last year with just a large disc herniation. She's kind of like a holistic type person, very much 
not a believer in Western medicine and was um, in excruciating pain and was terrified of surgery, never had surgery in her life. And she like had to be brought by her friend in a wheelchair and was just, I was like, you know, you, you have to let me fix your back because you can't even move right now. And uh, she was having impending cotoquinus syndrome, basically like a huge disc herniation in her spine that w- could potentially leave her uh, with permanent deficits, um, like going to the bathroom and uh, leg weakness. And so admitted her to the hospital, did surgery. She did great. Um, she had, this is about nine months ago, had complete recovery of her bowel and bladder symptoms and her leg. And she came back in to see me and brought me just this um, nicest card and some flowers and just told me how much of a difference I had made in her life from this experience that she had in medicine and how great grateful she was. So it was, it was it's always a nice touch to be thanked for something that, that I do every day. So yeah, it seems like you definitely induced a shift of mindset even like as you were kind of saying initially that her uh, trust in the western medicine was not that found uh, and however now it seems like that mindset kind of shifted after you did surgery and now she's seeing all these improvements so that is very profound to say the least there are some misconceptions about surgeons and i say that because it seems that you know, surgeons are only seen as surgeons and thereby do not have much patient interaction. But this doesn't seem to be the case at all, especially with what we just talked about, right? So I guess while I was doing my homework to prepare for this interview, I uh, picked up on you saying that when you see a patient, you don't assume that they're the next uh, quote-unquote case, but rather you kind of work as a spine doctor first, where you explain the terminology and the pathology and the issues surrounding pain first. So I would say, like, is there a specific reason for this approach where you want to be a spine doctor first instead of seeing the patient as a case? In general, it's very intimidating for any patient to make an appointment to see a surgeon because I think many patients come in, and and that's not just with a neurosurgeon, but with any type of uh, surgeon or subspecialty surgeon uh, that that we're going to tell them they have to have surgery. And so my approach is just to you know, try to get to know them a little bit, what symptoms are they having and for them to understand their issues and not necessarily recommend surgery. I mean, you know, I always tell them my job is to educate them and to tell them their options. And I give them all the options that they have with their, whatever's going on with them and, and surgery may or may not be an option, but we kind of go through that and very basic terminology, not assuming that they understand all these medical words that we like to use and just kind of come to them from a a person to person approach. Um, kind of like their, you know, kind of like their friend just to explain it so they can understand and make appropriate decisions. So that's, that's my approach to, um, to being a neurosurgeon for my patients. Yeah, and it seems to be uh, very beneficial to have the conversation of all these different approaches and kind of choices they have along with pain management. So from your experience, do you feel that patients feel better to go through surgery when they have had this conversation previously and they have realized that kind of the pain management aspects have failed? So surgery is the next best approach. So thereby they feel more comfortable going with it. Yes. Yeah. I think 
you know, as long as they understand, I mean, there are times where patients absolutely need surgery and there's no other option. And I have to kind of convince them, but, you know, most of the time we just kind of have to go through their options and answer their questions and decide, you know, what, what they want to do next. So I see. I think you're in a very good position to answer this because you are a neurosurgeon and you are having these conversations with, with patients. So what would be your recommendation to help the new and upcoming neurosurgeons for when they are doing their patient consultations? So kind of straying away, straying, I guess, a bit away from the technical aspects, but rather the patient care parts, because I feel like that part is kind of often overshadowed in the public perception, considering that the, you know, the word neurosurgeon has a lot of clout. <laughs> yeah, I just think that the patients have to be comfortable with you. And so surgeons really need to develop the type of person to person relationships with their patients in order to give them the best, not only to gain their trust, but to give them the best advice in the way that they can understand. Because I think we like to use a lot of, I mean, the way medical education is, we're using lots of big words and, and in surgery, like all these different techniques and approaches to the spine. And there's so, especially in spine surgery, there are so many different ways of approaching one particular problem. And the patients don't really care for the most part. I mean, a lot of that is they just want their problem fixed in the way that they think you think it's the best. So you know, just finding a way to really uh, interact with people and explaining things in a very basic um, manner, I think, would is the most advantageous for future surgeons to, to try to succeed in practice. I see. So uh, kind of confidence in yourself and confidence in making the best choices, uh, well, the best decisions along with communication, it seems, is very important. So I do want to move into neurosurgery a bit. Uh, it is a very hyper-competitive and intense field, uh, one of the most intense in medicine. And the statistic that only about 5% of neurosurgeons are females, um, considering that, I think it's only fair that we explore a little bit into what made you explore neurosurgery, because you've had very strong role models like your mother, who used to be a sheriff's deputy and dispatcher. So I think your story speaks of the personal grit, but also the circumstances, right? Uh, you were kind of thrown into at an early age. Uh, so can you please tell the audience how you got into neuro and spine surgery? Sure. I, like most young girls. I always admired my mom and wanted to be like her. And as you said, she was a sheriff's deputy and uh, had a few other jobs. So she was a dispatcher as well and a member of the dive team and the honor guard. So she was very involved in law enforcement in my community. And I always thought how cool she was. And at that time, I was in the early 90s and still today. I mean, there's not a lot of female cops out there either. So she was kind of like a unicorn then. And and I just really wanted to be like her. Um, and then when I was 13, she was injured in the line of duty as a cop. Her patrol, she, she worked a very hard part of town. Uh, lots of violence, gang violence, particularly in her patrol car was shot at. And she struck a tree veering off the road from the bullets and broke her neck. Um, and I was just about two weeks away from starting high school uh, as a freshman. So it was just kind of in that time of my life where I had been hitting puberty and trying to decide what I want to do with my life and uh, and how my high school career and future may be. And so that was a very kind of monumental time in my life to where things shifted about uh, completely upside down with 
her injury, her recovery, her surgery, and she was she was not at home for six months. Um, she was in rehab and uh, never regained function. So she was a C4 quadriplegic. So she was trached, uh, was on a ventilator, was uh, unable to move her arms or legs, and had to learn how to live life moving forward like that. So obviously very devastating for my family and for me. I didn't want to be a cop anymore. <laughs> so I yeah. was like, uh, I, I, I wanted to fix her. I wanted her to be better. I wanted her to be mom again. And um, I wanted to know why you, someone could be injured like that. And it was just, that's it. There's no other answer. You're just going to be like this. And I couldn't really accept that. So I started learning about the spinal cord, the spine neural regeneration, um, shadowed her neurosurgeon in high school. Um, and just understanding about trauma and how that affects the spine just grew an interest for neurosurgery and um, decided whenever I did go to college that I wanted to stay close to home to uh, be close to her. Um, and then I, I got some great mentors um, in college to try to help me on that pre-medical pathway. So I wanted to do medicine, not to be a doctor. I wanted to do medicine because I wanted to be a spine surgeon. So I had no other path. I mean, I, that's, that's just what I wanted to do. And I set my mind to it. And, you know, the same, same thing, many people told me along the way that there's not a lot of women in, in, in surgery. And, you know, you may want to think about your lifestyle and you may want to, you know, look into something more um, accommodating. And, you know, I had the mindset that she had and I was, and she always told me you can, you know, do whatever you want. So I didn't listen to any of that and, and proceeded to go along the way. So I just had some great uh, male mentors in, um, in college and medical school and in residency that really helped me get to where I am today. So I'm grateful. Yeah. I mean, talk about grit. Uh, and also, yeah, like your story is very unique. It is very devastating you did move a mile away from where your mom lives right now. Um, and I assume to look after and to provide that mental support by physically being there for her uh, when you can. So, and I was actually thinking that you have such a unique position in this sense, because you know how the post-op lifestyle can be sometimes and the mental health aspects that are involved with neurosurgeries and major surgeries of any kind right so do you think it helps you connect with patients more because you do understand the challenges associated with surgeries yes i think i mean i think that's what really allows me to help patients make decisions about elective surgery and then also help to connect with my trauma patients because I know what it's like. I'm, I live it. I mean, I don't personally live it, but I live it through my mom and my family and understanding what they're going through in that moment of time. When I tell them, okay, your loved one has just, you know, broken their back or your loved one has just had a massive stroke. I know what that means that not at that moment, but I, you know, can relate to them as to three months from now or three years from now and, and try to help, um, you know, educate them the best I can. And so I think, think it definitely gives me an empathy uh, for my patients and their families in in the setting of anything that comes up uh, related to to neurosurgery. So, 
Yeah, and empathy is so important. Um, and when I was, you know, going through um, some of your posts, I noticed this one particular one. It kind of stood out to me. It was you said that you can literally perform the surgery multiple times as a surgeon so it's no big deal to you but the patient is having it done once and it's all brand new to them it's on on their part of the body so it's such a different experience and for you to really understand that is very useful in the communication right yes i mean like you said there i may do you know, six or eight surgeries a day, but for that one patient, that may be the only surgery they have in their life. And so to nonchalantly kind of blow that off because it's just my every day is, is, is not really fair. So I really try as much as I can, you know, not to overlook anything and to be very particularly uh, explanatory to the, to the patients and, and uh, just make sure that that experience is good for them. I'm pretty sure all your patients really appreciate that as well. Uh, So you, not only went back to your hometown after your training, but also what is really fascinating to me is that you are working with Dr. Muhana. I believe that's how you pronounce yes. his name. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, so I guess for the audience, can you please explain the role Dr. Muhana played in your life? So he is my mom's neurosurgeon. So he was the doctor that came out to us when I was 13 and told us that you know, she had broken her neck and that she may never walk again. So he is uh, been in Gainesville in my town as, as the neurosurgeon for uh, forever and is kind of brought neurosurgery to our area. And so I, I shadowed him in high school. He's the one I mentioned I had shadowed and um, just looked up to him as a role model and, and how he has really brought um, uh, patient care to our area. And um, when I was looking for a job, I knew that coming back home was kind of one of my goals. And so I, uh, there's a few practices in the area, but I joined his practice. So now we're, we're partners. So it's uh, really kind of a uh, full circle for me. <laughs> yeah, full circle moment for sure. Uh, would you say that there's a different type of connection with him compared to the other physicians that you've worked with, especially because of your history going all the way back? Absolutely. I, I think I look up to him a little bit as a as a father almost or father figure just because he has kind of done so much uh, for us over the years and in my career. And um, he's, he's definitely uh, a role model for me. I'm going to get into something that may be a little bit like touchy and you don't have to answer this, but are there any days where you think about whether or not you could have done something differently or if the outcome could have been different for, for your mom, like, you know, perhaps with the newer technologies that you have today, which is which wasn't available more than 20 years ago? No, I think it's a good question. I think that it's only human nature to think that if hindsight's 2020 and I could go back, if could I have done something different? Would I have done something different? And I, I think I do think about that. Um, I think about that in every spinal cord injury patient I have too. Like, okay, how can I maybe should should I do the surgery right this second? Uh, should I take a different approach? How should we take their postoperative care to prevent secondary injury to the spine uh, that we know now has different data points than what we had at that time? And so, yeah, I do think about that, but. I mean, you know, the, the thing about life in general is that you really can't, I mean, you're dealt with things in life and 
it is the way it is. And so you have to move on from that. And I don't think that the outcome would have been any different at that time. I just think it was something that happened and, and we've all tried to move on with our life the best we can. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you are a big proponent of minimally invasive surgeries because of factors such as, you know, faster operating time, less hospitalization, less blood loss, and of course, less uh, chances of infection. So can you please explain to me why minimally invasive surgery is not usually an option for people who previously have had surgeries, especially considering all the benefits that I just mentioned? Yes, Um I mean, it is an option depending on the circumstance, but in spine surgery, often it is, you know, a repetitive process, or sometimes we say the gift that keeps on giving, uh, because if someone's got a bad spine, I mean, usually it's uh, a problem that lives with them and goes on with them. So if they have to have surgery at one level, it's not uncommon that in the future, they may have to have surgery again. And, um, you know, it does limit our options because minimally invasive surgery, we rely on fluoroscopy or x-ray. We rely on normal anatomy to dock our ports and that kind of thing. Uh, Or if they've had hardware to add on to that hardware is difficult through minimally invasive options. So it's not always not an option, but there are ways to uh, adapt some uh, minimally invasive techniques into revision surgery. Uh, in combination with so many open type approaches too. So that's, that's kind of what I do. I mean, if there's ever a time where I feel like a pathology can be addressed best by a minimally invasive option, that's, that's what I'm going to do. If I feel like it's going to be addressed best by an open option, then, then that's what I do. So. I see. Uh, so you mentioned that if you have a bad spine and obviously the gift, uh, quote unquote, uh, gift that <laughs> keeps on giving. So if you have a bad spine, does that like, like what constitutes a bad spine? Is that like, do you have lower back pain growing up or what is it exactly? I think it, what I mean by that is just like kind of degenerative spine pathology. So meaning like as we age, I always tell patients as we age, our spine ages with us. And in some patients, you know, they develop uh, injuries to their spine at a younger age um, and, you know, usually 30s and 40s. We're not talking about children here, but um, even though there are some spine problems that can happen in kids. But, um, you know, for my practice, it's mostly degenerative spine. So we're talking about people in their 60s and 70s and 80s and, um, you know, they get back pain or neck pain and arthritis or injury to multiple spots in their back. It's usually not just isolated to one level. If it is, it makes it pretty straightforward, but it's, a you know, usually process that affects the entire spine. So when we surgically address it, usually we don't fix the entire thing. We just focus on a particular spot that's given them issues. And, you know, two years down the road or three years down the road, it may be another spot. And so that's, that's what I that's what I mean by that. I see. Um, so I guess that brings me up to the next question, which are implants. Um, and I have heard you talking about uh, Optimus implants. I'm pretty sure that's what they're called um, in another interview. So can you just elaborate on that and kind of how that plays a role in uh, treating these spine issues that and also like a little bit of a preventative measure for future issues? Yeah. So when we do spine surgery, in some cases, we do use implants to 
uh, like replace a disc in the spine or place in screws into the spine to hold it together or even, you know, disc replacement models. So there's lots of different implants that we use in spine surgery. Um, I think the implant that you're referring to is the OptiMesh implant, which is a implant that we use for fusion in the low back. Um, and that is a device that I am a big proponent of because it is a very minimally invasive uh, option for back problems. So I have become very proficient in using that technique and the implant is, it's the only implant that you can put in through this technique. So that's why it's so unique, but basically you can, you know, through a tiny little seven millimeter incision, which is, you know, no longer than the end of your pinky finger, I can uh, get into the spine, uh, remove the disc and then place this implant into the disc space without disrupting any additional anatomy, uh, which is very um, useful and it's very minimally invasive and has, has really good outcomes. Um, that's usually used in combination with screws and that kind of thing, uh, but those can also be placed in a, a minimally invasive fashion as well. Uh, are you aided by microscopy or like intraoperative CT imaging? Um, it is placed purely by fluoroscopy, so by x-ray. Um, and then you can use robotics or navigation, which is like GPS kind of placement of implants into the spine. So I usually use uh, x-ray to place it and then confirm it by intraoperative imaging, such as CAT scan. But you actually can't, it's so small that you can't really see anything with a microscope. So it's all placed purely based on x-ray and feel. So kind of neat <laughs> yeah i mean it sounds neat but it also sounds very intense like you have to be very precise <laughs> <laughs> yes very precise you have like a window into someone's back to of about you know 20 millimeters to place it perfectly and if you place it not in the right spot i mean it can uh, have nerve injury and devastating circumstances so it's got to be perfect every time yeah uh what would you say kind of helps you uh get very good and get very optimized with this technique training and and just doing a lot of them so i started doing this kind of on my own it actually became fda approved so you know in other words uh, a lot of products and medicine doctors use but maybe they don't have fda clearance for that particular application um but this product actually only gained fda approval for this application about a year ago, um, but I've been using it since 2016, just adapted it into my practice, learned the technique on my own. And um, and so I've gained a lot of proficiency in that um, over the past, gosh, five or six years. So I've placed a lot of them. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that is very impressive. You kind of self-taught it in some ways. So uh, I guess being situated in a rural area, how has your experience been working with or kind of getting access to the newest technologies? Is there any difference? Uh, or is it kind of like, okay, there are reps, and they will, you know, come through and give you access to these things? You know, bringing a type of medicine to a more, uh, I wouldn't say our area is rural, but it is um, a smaller it's not a, a big city, but we you learn newer techniques and neurotechnology and training. But as you are in an area, so so when I came, you know, I was the youngest surgeon at the time, and so I did bring a lot of techniques to the area, um, and and on that same token, brought a lot of new products and new equipment and stuff like that. And so it's kind of grown, and 
we do have a few newer surgeons who um, have come to the area and brought uh, different techniques and implants into the market. So I think just staying educated too, like going to conferences such as what I'm doing uh, to really learn what people are doing now um, and to get into to bring it to your region. So. Yeah, it seems like it's a very much a collaborative efforts, diffusion of ideas and skills, if we do say so. I guess my next question would be, so we were obviously talking about advancements of technology and things like that, um, robot-assisted surgery. So what are some of the issues, would you say, with, uh, with the advancements of robot-assisted surgery? So issues with having more surgeons taking role in the indirect surgeries as they're learning procedure as they're going through residency or whatnot, uh, as compared to the direct surgeries that, you know, you have done personally when you were going through uh, residency, if that makes any sense. Can you, will you repeat that a little bit? Sorry. Um... Yeah, yeah, sure. So basically, there are uh, with a lot of new technologies coming up, surgeons are becoming more and more reliant on them to the point where it's like their involvement to the surgeries is going to be a little bit indirect or it's probably currently indirect surgeries uh, as compared to the direct ones that have been taking place for the past few decades, right? So um, is there an issue with that? Right. I think that is a great question. And I think that it's uh, goes back to the level of training and um, where you train and how you're trained. But I kind of learned spine surgery in that time period where these technologies were just coming out. So I had a fair amount of, of attendings that I learned from that did it open in the traditional way. And then uh, some attendings that did it, you know, using some of these newer techniques. And so I learned both ways. And I think that um, a lot of, you're right, a lot of newer surgeons really rely on the technology to get them through and like maybe can't place uh, a screw if if you didn't give them navigation or something like that, maybe ha- would have a harder time than doing it the more traditional way. And I think, um, you know, you just kind of have to really in, in your training, learn how to do it both ways and really get good at doing it, you know, with the blindfold on without having all these tools available. But also, I mean, you know, we do have the technology and we should be able to do things uh, better with it. And so I think it is helpful to have have those technologies, but also to know how to do it if something doesn't go right. So for example, like definitely been in cases where the navigation isn't registered right. So I have to pick up on, hey, this doesn't seem like it matches up with what's the computer telling me. So you have to be able to recognize that and then take over and fix it when it's not, when things, the technology doesn't work. So that that's how we deal with technology all the time now too, even in the office, like computer system goes down, everybody freaks out, but you got to learn how to do things uh, without, without yeah. technology sometimes. What's interesting is that as you were just talking about this, like I knew I was talking to an expert because <laughs> you were basically saying that, hey, I can tell the difference when the navigation is different from what I'm seeing on the x-rays, which is very, uh, like very interesting someone who's outside of this field to hear the level of, I guess, familiarity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do want to talk a little bit about ambulatory surgeries compared to uh, traditional hospital-based surgeries. So uh, 
do you do ambulatory surgeries? Uh, and if so, kind of what are some of the pros and cons with it? Absolutely. I do, I would say probably at least half of my surgeries as in an ambulatory setting. And so what that means is outpatient setting or not requiring hospitalization after spine surgery. So I think that is the way just medicine in general is going. I mean, especially the pandemic has really changed our whole perception on hospitalization, exposure to diseases and stuff. So patients know, hey, I don't want to be in the hospital or I don't want to get exposed to uh, COVID. Uh, I want to don't want to go to hospital, have my surgery. I want to go somewhere else. So I won't be exposed to the quote sick people. And so um, I think our mindset around surgery is, and especially neurosurgery is moving in that direction. So finding techniques to perform the surgery in which a patient won't need hospitalization is really important in growing and moving forward and patient care and also patients are getting older and, you know, they don't, they may not be able to tolerate a big surgery. So yes, I, I do cases that are outpatient, both at a, in a hospital setting. So, uh, you know, patients may be a little bit too sick to have anesthesia in a setting to where they may have a complication from anesthesia, but I also work at a surgery center in which we perform uh, same day spine surgery all the time. So, yeah. I guess um, it would be a little bit unfair if we don't talk about your work-life balance because you are a neurosurgeon, <laughs> you have a lot going on, and now it seems like you have it pretty well handled. I mean, you're going to these conferences, you know, enjoying um, the little time you do have to yourself. So I guess my question is, how has the work-life balance have been for you as a neurosurgeon? Has it been better working at a clinic associated with a major hospital compared to working directly in the hospital 50-50 as you were talking about? Work-life balance is paramount to happiness as at work and at home. And so it's definitely a learning process. I still learn from it every day and how I can do it better. But I think, you know, that people going into medicine now are more really want to learn how to do that. And so I think that really learning from yourself as to how you can arrange your schedule better to fix whatever things that are important to you. Because if you're happy at work, you like your job, um then you're going to do better surgery so if if happiness is being home and putting my kids to bed every night which to me it is um or as many nights out of the week as i possibly can um then i do my best to try to make sure i can make that happen um and you know or you know spending time with my husband or going out and going out on a trip or going to watch my football games that i like to go watch so it's just to be happy overall, you kind of have to fit that work-life balance well. Yeah, that uh, little dose of satisfaction uh, that we get throughout the day definitely adds up. So I realize that I do have to let you go despite the many more questions I have, <laughs> but perhaps we can save it for a round two for another time. Uh, but before we do part ways, though, it is kind of tradition around here at this show that I take you through a guided story as a closing remark. So we like to imagine that you are a traveler who traveled and stopped by Doctor's Inn uh, to rest for lunch. So now before you leave, the innkeeper, which is me, uh, ask you, a, you know, to share a quote or a piece of advice so that I can frame it on my wall 
uh, my hypothetical wall. <laughs> what would that piece of advice be? It can be something that you live your life by, a principle, a quote, ideology. Oh, I like that. Um, mine would be YOLO. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think, I think you know, you only you only live once, so you have to do what makes you happy. You have to pursue that career that you want to make you happy. You want to pursue that goal in your personal life that makes you happy, and because you never know when that can be immediately taken away. I've learned over my career and in my personal life that you know life can be instantly changed within seconds, and so if you don't give yourself things that give you gratitude, then you, you can easily lose that. So I guess that's what I You only live once. You only live once. You're here. (laughs) YOLO. Yeah. I mean, live in the present and enjoy the moments. Um, All right. So thank you so much, Dr. Grunch, for your valuable time, you know, in between the time off that you have right now here at Vegas. I hope that you have a really good time there. Near surgery, you know, still remains to be one of the most interesting fields out there and also very intense, might I say. Uh, And you highlighted, you know, the aspects of spine surgery very well. So thank you very, very much. Thanks for having me. It was fun. All right. Uh, A major thank you to all you lovely homo sapiens who stopped by Doctors In. All our show notes can be found on www.doctorsinpodcast.com. You can also search up Doctors In Podcast on Instagram to watch the animated videos for each of our episodes. Also, don't forget to follow Dr. Grunch on Instagram and on TikTok. Uh, She has some really cool videos. Uh, See you next time, guys. Bye.